Good morning. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 17. Hey, real quick, let me just add to what uh, Pastor Scott had to say about our, our campaign, um, Dare You to Move. You can download any of those messages uh, online. Also, uh, the highlight of that series was really the testimonies, and no, those, those are now available to download. If you go onto our website and hit the Dare You to Move 2.5, it'll take you to a page where you'll have all of those uh, different testimonies, all five of them. They're quite wonderful. Uh, let me just remind you and also thank you for... Uh, Getting involved with this campaign, the vision was twofold to inspire DB family to be more fully devoted to Christ and taking steps of faith in the 5G discipleship process. Thank you for many of you that are doing that as we are becoming more fully devoted to Christ. 5G, genuine growing, giving, going, all for God's glory. Second uh, part of this campaign purpose was together raising money for the purpose of fully uh, developing and enhancing our church home to its fullest capacity to better reach seekers and build believers to full devotion to Jesus Christ for God's glory. Thank you so much for those of you that are making that uh, commitment here. Many have already made that commitment, and so thank you so much. We got a great study, kicking off a new series. I love it. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God is the title of, of this series we're heading into. The title of this weekend's message is The Necessity of Prayer. This series is based on Timothy Keller's book by the same title. Now, imagine... You were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that without a daily dose of a particular medicine, you will certainly die. Do you think that you would ever forget and miss taking the daily dose if your life was dependent upon it? Probably not. I mean, you would make sure that you took that daily dose because you're going to expire. You're going to die if you don't. Five to six years ago, my wife... um, My wife Nancy went through a traumatic time in her life and she confronted me with gentleness and respect and uh, said, hey, you know what, I like the way that you love to pray with everybody in the church and even people that are outside the church, but I'm not going to make it if you don't start praying with me. It was kind of a gut punch because I'm thinking, here, I'm Pastor Ray. I should be praying with my wife, but I'm not praying with my wife. And, uh, and so I started praying with her, and we've continued uh, that consistently as, as best as we can, and it certainly made a major difference in her life. Suffering has a way of reminding us of something that has, that has always been true. When we go through difficulties, it reminds us of something that's always been true, and here's what's always been true. You and I can't survive or even thrive without vital union and communion with God. In fact, in fact let, me, let me take that just a little bit further here, that believe me, this is what your heart longs for more than anything, more than anything. You long for this. You might not be in touch with that, but that's, that's what you long for more than anything. Now, now, as we've started the study already and your mind has kind of drifted off to something else, come back, come back, come back. Okay. I mean, it's easy for us to do. We so easily kind of drift around and maybe whatever it is that it drifted off to, that's not even 
that doesn't even come close to, to how important this is. You might not believe that yet, but hopefully, eventually, you will that, believe me, this is what your heart longs for more than anything else, vital union and communion with the living God. That's what this whole series is about. And so we're going to unpack these uh, notes, look at this text. This text is just simply wonderful text. It's a beautiful text. And uh, we'll look at that in just a moment. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's go once again before the throne of grace. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father God, you have, you have gone to unbelievable lengths to communicate your desire for us to be close to you, to experience all and intimacy with you. You've given us this amazing book, the Bible, to instruct us. You sent your son to die for, for our sins, to reconcile us to you. And you have placed your Holy Spirit within us. That is amazing. To enlighten and empower us. The greatest privilege conceivable and the purest pleasure imaginable are to know you, to love you, to in obey you, to serve you. So show us this morning wonderful things from your word and help us to see more clearly the necessity of union and communion, prayer, interaction with you, our most high and glorious God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Uh, this text is in, I think, perhaps the greatest uh, chapter in the Bible. Uh, it's chapter eight of Romans. Wonderful chapter. Sometime we'll, we'll work through that chapter. But we've talked, we've certainly uh, taught on this in the past, but it's just simply wonderful. And uh, this text, we begin reading in verse 14, we'll take all the way to verse 17, Romans chapter 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's, that's important. So if you're led by the Spirit of God, then that would say that you truly are sons of God. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? You'd have to go back to the previous verse, verse 13. If you still have your Bible open, you can see. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So by the Spirit, so being led by the Spirit would mean putting to death the deeds of the body. What does that mean? This is what that means. It means putting to death any thoughts, feelings, actions coming from a heart that would prefer anything, desire anything more than God. That's what it means really to, to be led by the Spirit. And so you put to death those thoughts, feelings, actions that come from a heart that would prefer anything more than God. And so he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Oh my goodness, in the next verse, verse 15. This verse 15 and 16 would be worth memorizing and meditating on. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, why are you so stressed out? Why are you so anxious? Why are you so angry? Why are you so depressed? That, that's not the spirit you received. I mean, you just, it's, not, it's not about have to. It's not slavery. Don't you understand that? That's not what the Christian life is about. And then he goes on and he makes a contrast. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Notice the exclamation mark. Cry, Abba, Father. Father. So you see the contrast here. It's not have to. It's, oh my goodness, want to. It's not fear. There's this amazing freedom that he invites us into that's part of ours by being called sons of God, this adoption as sons. 
And then the next one is a, is a bit of a peculiar verse because uh, maybe you've kind of tried to wonder, what is this about? Well, we'll talk about it. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Wow, what is that? What's happening there? There's something deep within our hearts. There's something going on. There's some sort of interaction. And then verse 17, and if children, then heirs. So if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, so we're heading into this study here, and we're talking about the necessity of prayer, and yet that, that, those verses didn't even talk about prayer. What's up with this? Well, actually, they're all about prayer. And in fact, this whole, uh, when you look at chapter 8, the only place that it actually talks about prayer are verses 26 and 27. You still have your Bibles open, you can kind of look over there. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he searches hearts. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What is that about? That's interesting. So, really, in this whole chapter... The only thing that really talks about prayer is those verses, 26, 27. What he's saying there is that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, and, and when we pray, God will give to us what we would have asked for if, if, uh, if we knew everything that he knows about us. He's going to take care of us. He's going to, when we pour out our heart to him, and it, it's obviously there's much more to it than that, but it doesn't talk about prayer in our text, but it's all about prayer. Let me give you the first fill in the blank on your notes. So as it relates to the necessity of prayer, number one, as sons of God, we have the Spirit of God giving us a connection with the living God that is astounding. And that's the first thing that we should, uh, should understand. When he's talking about it in verse 14, let me read it again, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So, so if we're sons of God, we're going to be led by the Spirit of God. Do you understand how astounding that is? As sons of God, we have the Spirit of God giving us a connection with the living God that is astounding. That's amazing. Now, when I said that, you kind of yawned, like, ah, oh, whatever, I've heard that before, no big deal. Well, just once again, you're, you're giving me uh, a little proof of your depravity, your sin. And, and, and oftentimes, we can read texts like this, and the reason why we kind of go through the motions and they don't, they don't move us or stir us is because, first of all, we have a sinful nature that's working against us. We also have an adversary that's dogging us, and then we have a whole set of values in our culture that's totally contrary to everything the Bible speaks. I mean, this right here should send you right through, this, through the ceiling if you really understood the implications of this. I mean, this is astounding that I can connect with the living God through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within me because of my confession of faith in Jesus. What do you guys think of that? You guys with me? Okay, like I said, the first service, don't make me have to come out there and kind of shake you a little bit to, to wake you up because you just don't want to sleepwalk through this message, okay? Because this is really, there's some pretty significant truths here that, that are life-changing when we understand the implications of these truths. And uh, see, how do we know that we're, we're sons of God? Well, John 1.12, I, I put this in as one of the cross-references, but to all who received him and believed in his name. Who's the him and what name are we believing in? Anybody? Yeah, we're talking about Jesus here. So we put our faith in Jesus, so, but to all who received him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Yeah, children of God. 
So this is a potential, a privilege, a power, even a pleasure beyond anything in this world. Believe me. And now let's go to the next point. As adopted sons of God, we have incredible or incalculable uh, privileges. So adoption usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. And what's interesting here, throughout this passage, throughout the context here of Romans 8, Christians are three times called sons of God, verse 14, 15, and 19, and then three times called children of God, Verses 16, 17, and 21, what's the difference? Well, sons of God is a, is a legal status. It's more factual. Children of God is more of a experiential kind of status. So if I were gonna talk to you about, you know, I wanted to move you and stir you, I'd talk to you as a, as a child of God, and yet there's this legal status, legal status, sons of God, more of that experiential status, or not experiential part of that would be children of God. Now, let me read to you a quote uh, from uh, Timothy Keller from his Roman study. And you need to understand this idea of being called, all of us called sons of God. In our day, only gender neutral language, children, children, is considered appropriate. And referring to men and women with a masculine pronoun, sons, is considered insensitive. But we should not try to correct the scripture. It is true that sonship was in Rome a status of privilege and power given only to males. Yet Paul now has the audacity to apply this to us, all of us, all believers. This shows that God does not distinguish in giving honor. All Christians, male and female, are now his heirs. It was a subversive thing for Paul to take a masculine-only institution and show, and to show that in Christ, the institution of empowering through adoption is used on females as well as males without distinction. Christian women should not chafe by being called sons any more than Christian men should chafe when called brides, Ephesians 5. We are sons, we are all sons and brides. Each metaphor tells us something about our relationship with Christ, end of quote. That's fantastic, that's amazing. Now, I've got a checklist here as adopted sons of God, we have incalculable privileges. What are they? I mean, they're, they're out of this world. Here's the first one is security. Verse 15, notice he said, we don't fall back into fear, but we cry, Abba, Father. So an employee or a servant, as, as said here, or a slave, basically obeys out of fear, out of fear of punishment or of loss of job, but a, but a child-parent relationship is not characterized by fear of losing the relationship is what he's saying here. Now, okay, let's fess up here. How many parents have ever wanted to fire your kids and hire new ones? It's like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna fire these kids and I'm gonna get some new ones, but you can't. And you know the crazy thing about this is that they're just like us. Those little midget demons, they're turning into little midget us. I mean, that's, more things are taught than caught, and so that's what frightens us often when we watch them. That's what I said, and I shouldn't be saying that. And so, the security that we have as children of God, 
Once your child, that's it. He can't fire you. You can't be fired. You won't be fired. And so that's the part of the, that idea. We don't fall back into fear. That's not the basis of our relationship. We're adopted as sons crying, Abba, Father. That's amazing. Next one is authority. Authority, verse 15. So we're not a slave, but adoption as sons. So in a house, slaves have no authority. They can only do what they're told, but children have authority in the house under their parents' authority, obviously. So as children of God, we are given authority. What are we given authority over? Sin, Satan. And we can move around in the world with confidence and poise knowing that our dad owns the place. And he responds to our request, our prayers. In fact, it's stunning that the sovereign God of the universe would ordain that our prayers cause things to happen that otherwise wouldn't happen. And that's what motivates me to pray because I know that when I interact with my creator God, that I'm his son, that he loves me, he listens to me, he responds to what I have to say. I didn't put this on your notes. Let me give you a couple verses that, that validate that. James 4.2 and then James 5.16. You guys are familiar with these two verses. I mean, this is, every time I pray, almost every time I pray, I always go back to these verses. What is James 4.2? We have not because we what? Because we don't ask. You mean to tell me that you do without a lot of times because you fail to come to your father? Yes, that's what it says. Otherwise, there would be things that would happen as a result of our interaction with him. It also tells us in James 5.16, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Now, righteous person doesn't mean that you're perfect. See, our righteousness is based on what Jesus did, not on what we do. So regardless of what you do, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have access to the throne room of God and God does, he, he acts, he, there's, as it says here, it is powerful and effective in what he will do in your behalf as you cry out to him as, as your Abba Father. So that's, it's just amazing. So security, authority. And then we have, oh, I love this next one, intimacy. I think it might be my favorite. I'm not sure. I've got a lot of favorites though. So intimacy, we cry, Abba Father. Abba is best translated daddy, a term of the greatest intimacy. So the first words uttered from Hebrew toddlers learning to talk was Abba, Abba. What are the first words uttered from American toddlers? Daddy, dada, no, mine. No. Okay, maybe, maybe in your home it was daddy, mama. But, uh, but those are very tender words. Now, let me ask you this question. What comes to mind when you think of intimacy with God as your father? I bet there would be a broad spectrum of people here that would, you know, all the way from, yes, I love it, to, oh, I'm still struggling with that. That's a struggle. Earthly fathers, no doubt, shape our concept of our heavenly father But God is a father like you've never known. See, the Bible makes this distinction. Even Jesus said, he's our heavenly father as opposed to earthly father. Heavenly, perfect. Earthly, imperfect. And so, 
Like most, you might need God to redefine for you this idea of a father. In fact, if your heart isn't drawn in when we talk about God, Abba, Father, there could be some blockage there in your heart because of your past experiences with your earthly dad. And uh, it's interesting, when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he didn't say, pray like this, our creator, our judge, our king, which are all true about God, but what does he say? He says, our father, our daddy. Luke 11 makes that very clear right at the front end of that. See, a creator owns you, a king rules you, but if that creator or king is your, your Abba father, your daddy, then all of his love and wisdom and power will be directed toward your best interest. Now listen to me. If you had any idea what the creator of the universe, our daddy, thinks about you, feels about you, wants to do in your life and through your life, believe me, nothing would keep you from him. And the only thing that keeps you from him is your, probably your false concept of him. And what I have found in my own life, that as I interact with him, the more I interact with him, and as he redefines who he is for me through the study of his word and prayer, I find myself more satisfied in him and less satisfied with the things much less important in life. That's that intimacy. And then we've got assurance. So we've got security, authority, intimacy, and then we have assurance. This is that verse that I was talking about. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What is that about? That's interesting. His Spirit bearing witness, giving testimony. There's something going on inside of me. There's a lot of debate about the nature of this testimony, but it appears to be an inner witness, testimony in the heart, a sense that says, yes. Yes, he really, he really loves me. It's almost as if this, this truth of being sons of God is not just a concept, it's a, it's a reality, as you often hear me talk about. Last week we talked about this, this reality. It was interesting that uh, when we talked about revival, what does that mean, what does that look like? John chapter 20, verse 22, it's interesting that, the, that Jesus breathed into his disciples. This was after his resurrection. He breathed into his disciples, says, receive the Holy Spirit. So they have the Holy Spirit. And then they have this experience in Acts chapter 2 that they are overwhelmed. They are overwhelmed with, with the wonders of God. That's what they were declaring. The wonders of God. They are captivated. And they have this whole new, new insight, new perspective that gives them this amazing courage and joy to even be martyred for their faith in Jesus. Ephesians 5.18 tells us a little bit about what that is. It's it's that spirit-filled life. Don't be drunk with wine which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. I I, I liken it, and I've heard this story a few times, and I think I've shared it here a few times. It'd be like you out at the park, and you see a father walking hand-in-hand with his son, and certainly the son knows that that's my daddy, and the daddy knows this is my son, but as they're walking hand-in-hand from time to time, the father will swing the boy up into his arms, 
and just smother him with kisses and maybe tickle him and they have fun. You can hear the boy laughing and carrying on and then he puts him back down and they walk a little bit further. It's almost, there are those moments in our lives when his spirit is bearing witness with our spirit where we feel that he is sweeping us up into his arms and smothering us with kisses that we just know I'm a child of God. And all of those big mountains all around us begin to melt down by the wayside because we know that he is more than enough and he's gonna see me through because he loves me more than anyone has ever loved me. See, that's that, that's, I believe, is, is what he's talking about there. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. And I, and I don't experience that near enough as I would want, and that's what I pray for us each and every week. I don't know, I mean, maybe you felt that during some of these songs. These songs were wonderful that we were singing this morning. Did you get a sense that, that your daddy was just swinging you up into his arms, sweeping you up into his arms of love and just smothering you with his kisses? I certainly had that experience last week in this service. If you were here... I mean, I was, uh, I was so overwhelmed at the end of the service. I'd kind of marinated in the teaching throughout the whole weekend, and when I hit this service, I was just, I, I had one of those experiences. I just started crying uncontrollably. I was overwhelmed. That was one of those moments. And I have those from time to time. That, that's typically what happens to me when I just have that overwhelming sense, God, I know that you're for me and you're not against me. You love me. Most modern uh, biblical commentators agree that these verses are describing a, a spiritual experience that is beyond words, his spirit bearing witness with our spirit. And as I said last week, there's nothing better than to have the assurance that the most important and powerful being in the universe adores you as his child. That's that assurance. I mean, we, we collapse in life because we don't live in the reality of that assurance. We, we are desperate for that assurance. And in fact, this is what I found in my life is that the more, the more that I have this assurance, the less I worry, the less I have self-pity, the less I have resentment, the less I envy, the less I'm self-absorbed. And I, I can tell when I'm not living in the reality of that assurance because I have all of those characteristics in my life that dominate my life. I don't know how else to express it to you because I know sometimes you can come in here and go, oh yeah, I've heard all that before. But no, 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 have you had those moments? Do you have those moments when you feel like he sweeps you up into his arms? There's nothing quite like that. I don't even know how to put words to it, but, the, but the, that's what he's saying. His spirit bears witness with our spirit. And then there's the inheritance. That's the next one, verse 17. And if children, then heirs. This kind of goes along with the quote that I read from Tim, uh, Timothy Keller from Romans. He says, this really means that we have an incredible future. See, in Bible times, when you had a large family, all the kids were, were certainly loved in the family, but the firstborn male was the heir who got the largest part of the wealth and carried on the family name. What the reason why they did that is this, this kept the family's influence intact and did not have it divided and dissipated. And, and this is what's crazy is that Paul, in, in a breathtaking way, calls all Christians heirs of God, firstborn, almost as if God's giving each one of us the largest part of the wealth. That, that's the idea behind that. Paul is saying that we, we have in store for us, what we have in store for us is so grand and glorious, it's almost as if God is giving us the largest part of the wealth and of his glory and who he is. I love what, uh, I think it's C.S. Lewis that said this, that he loves all of us as if there's only one of us. I have his undivided attention. 
And to be quite honest with you, I think that, I think he loves me better than he loves you. No, no, really. I, I, I sometimes I feel guilty. I feel like, wow, you really love me a lot. I, I think I'm his favorite. Yeah. No. You are too. And that's the idea behind this. That, that's that inheritance. That's why it's kind of funny if you read through the Gospel of John, he doesn't refer to himself, the writer, as John. Who does he refer to himself as? Yeah, the one who Jesus loves, beloved. It's almost kind of like he's rubbing our nose in. It's like, yeah, he loves me. And he, I know that he's not, but he's like, the beloved. Oh, by the way, I'm beloved. You guys knew that, didn't you? I'm sorry that you're not. Okay, maybe you are. Do you put your faith in Jesus? Then you are. That's amazing. See, there's that inheritance. And of course, that... Uh, that leads to uh, discipline. Oh, I knew he was going to talk about that. Because that's part of the text. We tend to kind of talk about the things that are part of the Bible and the text. So discipline, verse 17, he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, here's what's interesting about the discipline. God disciplines us as his children, but his discipline, listen to me, you guys got to get this, because I have people come up to me all the time, say, I'm going through really pain and suffering. Is God... Is this punitive? Is this punishment because of what I've done? I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus took all of your punishment on the cross. It's not punitive, it's purifying, yes, but not punitive. It's not punishment. Jesus took all of that on the cross for you. It is finished. He's not going to ask you to pay for that. Now, there's certainly consequences to our decisions, and we have to face those. But let me tell you something, God allows the pain in our lives because he has a purpose. There is purpose behind our pain as our daddy who loves us. Just as, as children, as parents discipline a child by allowing or introducing a milder form of pain into the child's life in order to teach and mature the child away from behavior which will lead to far greater pain in the future, so does our daddy in heaven do the same for us. I mean, you guys, parents, you know, you, you, you look at your kids and you go, wow, that characteristic is gonna get them hurt later on in life, and it almost kind of frightens you. If you're, you see a characteristic in your child, you know, I'm gonna inflict some pain on them right now. It's a little milder form compared to the pain that they're gonna experience if they continue down that path. Do you guys agree with that as parents? See, and, and that's what our, our Heavenly Father does for us as he disciplines us. And uh, because he's wanting us uh, to take on, here's the last one, family resemblance. Now that's not part of our text, but verse 29 is part of the, part of the context. And uh, he says, to be conformed to the image of the Son. So this means this means that though we are adopted, God is able to actually implant his nature in us. So we actually, we actually come to resemble. So through the pain and the difficulties of life, he's working in our life in such a way. Our pain has a purpose, and he's wanting, to, wanting us to resemble our older brother Jesus in our values, character, and attitudes more and more. So we should be having greater capacity to love God and love each other. If anything, we should be characterized by love, love for God and love for each other. Now, what does that have to do with prayer? It has everything to do with prayer. Take a look at the next point, number three. So we kind of walked through that, a lot, of, a lot on that checklist there 
of, uh, as adopted sons of God, we have incalculable privileges. But number three, prayer involves not only the convictions of the mind. I just gave you some convictions. Those are what the Bible teaches us. But also the affections of the heart. I pray that it stirred up some affection within you. Now, if it didn't, it's because we all contend with our sinful nature. It's our depravity, and we have values of this world that try to get us to believe that the things of this world are more important than the things of God, and we have an enemy that dogs us. But what we need to do is pray, asking the Holy Spirit to help us experience our theology. That's the second part of that uh, number three. So prayer involves not only the convictions of the mind, but also the affections of the heart. Prayer is asking the Holy Spirit to help us experience our theology. So I might have gone through that list and you're just like, yeah, whatever, checklist, check, check, check. But do you have that deep within your heart? Does it change the way that you respond to the circumstances of life, the people of life, the things of life? It should. And the way you begin to get that to begin to take place in your life is that you pray that the Holy Spirit would help you to experience your theology. That's verse 16, once again, his spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we really are the sons of God. First uh, Peter 1.8, it is a very compelling verse, but it's also a very convicting verse for me because I don't even come close to living this out. But Paul, is, or the apostle Peter, is writing to second generation Christians, and this is what he's saying that should be normal in our Christian experience. He says, though you have not seen him, talking of Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, what's interesting about that is that Peter doesn't say, hey, when you become mature like me, then you'll begin to experience more inexpressible, glorious joy. He doesn't say that. He's almost as if he's saying, hey, this is normal for any believer in Jesus Christ. This is what you should be, should be experiencing in your life, Peter is assuming that an experience of sometimes indescribable, which would be unspeakable, and indestructible, which would be glorious joy in prayer is normal for every believer in Christ. I'm not even close to that. I wish I was. I pray, and that's part of why we pray. Pray our theology. Prayer is asking the Holy Spirit to help us experience our theology. Let me give you another quote. Kind of helps us to understand this. This is from the book by Timothy Keller on this uh, same topic, Prayer Experiencing on Intimacy with God. He quotes from a Scottish theologian, John Murray. Listen to what John Murray has to say. It is necessary for us to recognize that there is an intelligent mysticism. Interesting two words. Intelligent, it's factual, it's scriptural, but mysticism is that it's experiential. So there's an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith, of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. He communes with his people, and his people commune with him in conscious reciprocal love. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold, metallic ascent. It's just, he's just saying going through the motions, checking the box, the church box, the prayer box, the Bible box. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion because, check this out, because communion with God is the crown and apex of true religion. True religion, yeah, Christianity is true religion as opposed to other religions, and it's the, it's the crown, it's the apex. This is what it's all about. 
The Christian life is about communion with God, interacting with him, knowing him. Now, Timothy Keller goes on, he says, Murray was not a writer given to lyrical passages. What he's saying is emotional passages. He, didn't, he wasn't into poetry and all that. Yet when he speaks of mysticism and communion with the one who died and ever lives for us, he is assuming that Christians will have a palpable love relationship with him and do have a potential for a personal knowledge and experience of God that beggars the imagination. Interesting. Spirit bears witness with our spirit. So prayer is asking the Holy Spirit to help us experience our theology. Now, number four, prayer is both assertive supplication, which is the awe and peaceful adoration. So we could categorize it, and we can certainly see it in this, in this text throughout Romans chapter eight. And I put it there on your notes. I, I gave you some examples of kingdom-centered prayer in the book of prayers, Psalms, and then there's also communion-centered prayers. I gave you both of those categories there. And so the Psalms, the book of prayers, affirms these two types of prayers. Westminster Catechism also does too. You guys familiar with that where it says, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? What is the purpose of our life? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So to glorify God, that's the assertive supplication, the all part. To enjoy him forever is the peaceful adoration, the intimacy heart. So, so prayer will be made up. Sometimes it can be made up of both of these at the same time. Sometimes it will just be one or the other. So one is really the seeking, seeking the advance of his kingdom in the hearts, in hearts and in this world. It's kind of storming the gates of hell. That's that assertive supplication. God, I pray for my friends. I pray for my own life. I pray for this church. You're storming the gates of hell. And then the other one is kind of seeking personal communion with God. That's more of just enjoying a foretaste of heaven. So it's kind of important. So as we work through this series, you're gonna see certainly a distinction between those two types of prayer. Number five, in prayer, we can identify and express our feelings, but also process them with brutal honesty in God's presence. Verse 15, he says, we cry, Abba, Father. Now the word cry here in the Greek is this, and that's why you got the exclamation mark behind the Abba and the Father. Uh, the word cry is, it is loud and expresses deep emotion. So we can cry, it's just loud, deep emotion, whatever that might be. We cry, Abba, Father. And I was thinking, as I was thinking of the, that, those words, Genesis 32, 22 through 32, Jacob wrestling with God. There's a wrestling that oftentimes we do with God in our relationship with him. I also got there Matthew 7, 7 through 11, where he says, uh, um, in fact, let me read just a couple lines of that. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock on the door. And, and really, when you understand that in the Greek, he's just saying, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. So there's an aggressiveness and then and there's this different levels almost with by asking, seeking, knocking, of emotionally sharing your heart with God. And he goes on, he says uh, that if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, give good gifts to you? Don't you have any idea how he wants to connect with you at the deepest level in your heart? And so this is really bringing the truth of God specific to where your heart is most restless. It's letting God meet you right where you are. 
So, so do you do that? I mean, if you're, if you're like me, most guys here probably don't even know where they are half the time, okay? And I'm not trying to be mean, but I mean, really, emotionally, most guys don't. And I don't know where I am until my wife tells me where I am, okay? <laughs> because she'll say, like, hey, why are you so stressed out? I'm not stressed out. Get off my back. And that's how I respond to her. And it's like, and it takes me a while for me to kind of figure out, I'm, I'm stressed out. And she goes, uh, you're pretty stressed out. You just ran that person off the road back there. I'm going to probably have to call 911 because the car is upside down, the car that you just ran off the side of the road. Hey, get off my back. And so, uh, so a lot of times we don't know that where we are until then finally we realize it and we go, hey, wait, wait, wait. You know, it's been a while since I really connected with God at that deep level. And I'll tell you what, when you begin to connect with God at that deep level, you cry out. Remember, it's loud, expresses deep emotion. That's what that word means, cry. Abba, Father, oh, Daddy. I am so desperate. I need you. I've got so much anxiety. I'm so angry. I'm so depressed. Now listen to me. When you do that, he will meet you right there. He will meet you. If you'll be honest with God, he'll be honest with you. See, that's what he's talking about there. In prayer, we can identify and express our feelings, but also process them with brutal honesty in God's presence. Next point on your notes, number six. God is the only person from whom you can't hide from. Prayer, therefore, leads to a self-knowledge and deep change that is impossible to achieve any other way. Now, I put there Psalm uh, 139. Psalm 139 is a, it's a splendid, wonderful psalm. And if you haven't read it for a while, you need to go and read it. But it was part of my reading as I'm working through the Bible and, uh, yesterday. And what's interesting, in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 139, God knows, he's basically, the psalmist saying, God knows everything about me. He's omniscient. Uh, verses 7 through 12, God is always there for me. He's omnipresent. And then verses 13 through 16, God is powerfully at work in me. He's omnipotent. And then verses 17 through 18 of Psalm 139, God is madly in love with me. And he talks of God's unconditional love. And this is what's so crazy about this psalm is that, uh, so he goes through all this, God God knows everything about me. God is always there with me. God is powerfully at work in me. God is madly in love with me. And it's almost like he's schizophrenic. He goes, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. I can't stand the wicked. I hate them. In fact, I hate them with a complete hatred. It's like, what the heck? Where'd that come from? It's almost like you're reading through the psalm. You're just like, oh, this is wonderful, wonderful. He just gets crazy for a few verses. What is that about? Like you and I have never done that before, huh? <laughs> like someone all of a sudden says something or and we just go, boom, we skyrocket. That's what he's doing. You know what he's doing? He feels safe with God and he's just unloading his feelings and those feelings look a little raw. I hate those people. I want to kill them. I mean, that's what he's saying. It's like, this is Bible? What in the world? Wait a minute, I felt like that. There's a few people on my hit list. I'm gonna add a couple more here this morning. Let's see, right over here. No, I'm telling you, he's just, he's open. That's what's so wonderful about that psalm. And then look at number seven. Living well depends on reordering of our loves. That's what he's doing. I mean, he's talking about all these wonderful things that God is doing in his life, and yet all of a sudden he kind of goes off, he's, you know, he's angry, and yet he's reordering his loves. To love our success more than God 
and our neighbor hardens our heart, making us less able to feel and to sense. Prayer is the key to everything we need to be and to do in life. So, so when, when our identity is in success, our identity is in success, success of our family, our career, or money, or leisure, whatever it might be, anything other than God, rather than our Savior. So when our identity is in our success rather than our Savior, then success tends to go to our head. We tend to boast about it. Hey, look at my family, or look how much money I have, or whatever. It tends to go to our head when we succeed. Success goes to our head, but failure goes to our heart. Self-pity. Like, I should be further down the road than what I am. Look at all my friends. They have so much more than I have. Woe is me. Well, what the heck? Don't you have an idea of what you have in Christ? Who cares what they have? But see, that's what we do. I mean, you know, that self-talk. We beat ourselves up, self-pity. So pride goes to our head, or that is success goes to our head. Failure tends to go to our heart. It just beats us up. And oftentimes, our disillusionment about life is because we have misplaced our identity. And that's what he's working through in Psalm 139. And, and you guys... You know, and, and this is what he says here. He says here in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So he says, search me, try me, lead me. And you guys know this. You've heard me say it many times before, that anything that you love more than God will control you when you seek it, <coughs> disappoint you when you get it, because it'll never be enough. Because that hole in your soul was not meant for anything in creation. It was meant for the creator and him alone. So it'll disappoint you when you get it. And it will, it will devastate you when, you when you lose it. Because you built all your life on that. Whatever it is. Other than God. That's why we get so devastated in life. We put all of our marbles in the wrong, all in the same basket. Rather than giving them all to God. And it creates all kinds of problems, and that's why he's, he's reordering his love. He's finding that you're the love of my life. Number eight, prayer is finding our way through duty to delight. Psalm 37, four, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That's my son, my oldest son's uh, favorite verse. And I used to think for years, I thought, well, that's interesting. Delight yourself in the Lord. Make yourself happy in God, and he'll give you whatever you want. That's what I thought that verse says. That's not what it says. Delight yourself in the Lord. Find your deepest delight in him, and oh my goodness, he will satisfy the deepest longing in your heart. He, not by the stuff he gives you. Certainly he gives us a lot of things, but it's he is the one that satisfies the longing in our heart. So we are embarking on a wonderful series. We're gonna spend about eight weeks just talking about prayer, and this is just the beginning. Next weekend we're gonna talk about, you know, the greatness of prayer. So, so, you, want, so you want a spiritually robust and vital prayer life? the more you realize that you can't survive or even thrive without vital union and communion with God, the more you realize that nothing can satisfy you like God, then nothing, nothing will keep you from him except, except idolatry. And idolatry, what is idolatry? Idolatry is thinking you can find security and significance and satisfaction elsewhere. So if you're new here with us this morning, thanks for being here, and I'd love the opportunity to meet you and give you a, a free drink coin to our cafe, have one on us. If you need prayer for any particular reason this morning, we'd love to spend some time with you up here in the front at the end of our service. Love to pray with you. Let's, let's end with prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I, I pray for those this morning that, uh, that don't know you, and uh, I pray that... Uh, 
they would come to know you. If you're here and you've never made a confession of faith, I would encourage you to do that this morning. You can do that. You might say, well, how do I do that? Well, you do it by, first of all, A, acknowledge that your sin separates you from God. B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for, for all of your sins, resurrected on the third day, conquering sin, death, Satan, and then C, confess him as your savior. Turn your life over to him, and you do that by prayer through faith. You can do that even right now between you and him. God, I pray for those that are doing that this morning and many others that are renewing their, their covenant relationship with you. And God, I pray that every one of us would apply these truths to our lives, living more and more this, this greatest privilege conceivable and the purest pleasure imaginable of vital union and communion with you, our glorious and beautiful God. I pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. God bless you guys. Love you very much. Have a great weekend.